Good evening, church. How y'all doing? Yeah? Are we good? Sweet. That's awesome to hear. I'm, uh, I'm going to be honest with you. I've been a little uh, crummy today, so if I cough, please forgive me if I'm short of breath. That's uh, my fault completely. Um, but we're going to be in Romans 7 tonight. So if you uh, have your Bible, open up to Romans chapter 7. And if you don't have a Bible, Ryan has got some for you. And so as you're flipping there, <clears throat> I'm going to pray and we'll, we'll jump into the, the word. Lord, I just want to thank you so much um, that you've called us to be uh, your body, your bride. Lord, and I pray that tonight uh, you would show us just how incredible that is. Lord, for those of us who either simply don't know that is a fact, Lord, or those of us who have forgotten it, Lord, and just need a refresher. Lord, I pray that um, you would meet each one of us where we're at, God, that um, we're all going through something different, uh, but you are a God who, who can show yourself in, in, in different ways. And so, so, Lord, show yourself tonight, but do it in a way that's going to stick out to us, Lord. Do it in a way that's going to just shake our foundations, Lord, and, and show us um, what things we've been placing above you, Lord, what things we need to be um, working on, Lord. But ultimately, just simply... Uh, reestablishing ourselves in you, Lord. Amen. We pray this in your holy and wonderful name. Amen. Amen. So as we we go through our study in Romans, we jump into Romans 7. And what we're walking into in Romans 7 is Paul instructing the Christians of Rome, and ultimately us, um, on how to combat sin that arises in our everyday lives. Um, he, he talks about the, the, the struggles of fleshly desires um, that we face, even, even though we have Jesus, that, that day to day we still face temptations, we still face desires to sin, we still face uh, moments of straying. And so Paul talks about that um, in these chapters, right? Because we know that, that just, just because we have Jesus, he puts his righteousness on our account, but our day to day lives don't suddenly become immaculate, Right? Like it's not you're saved and then the next day you get the raise of your life and then you're married or you graduated school, but we still struggle. We still struggle, right? And so Paul is talking about that. And he started that in Romans 6. He, he started that in, in, in Romans 6. He says, what shall we say then? He says, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And he says, certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? And we heard Pastor Zach talk about this. And it was a wonderful analogy, right? He says that he went to Indiana, which I don't know why you'd go to Indiana. I've never been there, so sorry if you're from there. But it doesn't seem that great because you don't hear a lot about it. But he says he went to Indiana, right? And they're, they're discussing what to get for dinner. And then somebody says, hey, how about Mexican food? And they take him to Taco Bell, right? Like it kind of resembles Mexican food because there's like beans and cheese in it. But it's not Mexican food. And so, so he, he, he compared that to our sins, that if you've, if you've had what is good, why would you go back to that, right? He says, if you've had real Mexican food, why would you go back to Taco Bell? And so he talked about that in chapter 6. Um, and and, and he, he continued to talk about a real issue among Christians, that, that we understand, we understand that we're dead to our sin, but we often, so often fail to remember that Jesus' death was followed by the resurrection. Meaning that so too must the deaths of ourselves, 
the deaths of our flesh, the deaths of our sin, be followed by a resurrected life that walks and lives with Jesus. And so that was Romans 6. And I love what, I love what Zach said. He, said. he said something that you probably don't hear a lot of pastors say. He said, grace is dangerous. That we love to throw around this word grace, that we're covered by grace. But grace is dangerous. Because we hear grace and we can respond in one of two ways. And we saw last week, one of those ways is that we hear grace and then we run with it. We hear you're free, you're free. And so we say, okay, I'm free. That means I get to do whatever I want, right? We hear, we hear freedom in Christ, but then we drop the in Christ part. And we take freedom and it's about what we get to do now. Because, hey, if Jesus is going to forgive my sins, why not do it? Why not just go fulfill my desires? It makes me happy. It shows people that God is gracious. Why shouldn't I keep doing that? And we saw Paul contend with that idea. He, he addresses the people that says, because Jesus died for my sins, I get to do whatever I want. Right? Paul, Paul says, there's people who will say, because Jesus died for my sins, I get to do whatever I want. And at the core of it, at the core of it, Paul looks at these peoples and he says, yeah, but if you've truly experienced Christ and he has saved you, why would you want to? He says, why would you want to go back to those things? Why do you want that debased mind to control your actions? Why do you go back to Taco Bell? And we may be quick to call it foolishness, right? We may say, that's so silly, right? That, oh, well, I'm a good Christian. I go to church. And then we see other Christians who, who go to church and they experience Christ and then they, they stray, they sin. And we go, that is so foolish of you. That is so foolish of you. But guys, I see that. I see that. And for me, it's heartbreaking. I don't look at that and I go, how foolish of you. I look at that and I go, Why? My heart breaks, my heart truly breaks for these people. And it's heartbreaking for Jesus. It's heartbreaking for Jesus because we take his, his wonderful gift and offer of grace and we abuse it. We mistreat it. We forget the torment that he went through on the cross in order to be able to say, come experience my love, experience my mercy, my compassion. And we mistreat it for our own selfish desires. And it breaks Jesus' heart. But man, man, it's so heartbreaking for his people. It is so heartbreaking for his people. Because, because as we return to our sin, it's a revelation that we either haven't experienced the fullness of his goodness, or it points to a possibility that we forgot what that's like. Because we say, this is Jesus, this is wonderful, but this looks pretty good over here. And it breaks my heart to see that. It breaks my heart to see that. On the other hand, on the other hand, and this is what we'll see tonight, some people will hear the word grace, but they won't experience the freedom in it. They'll hear grace and they'll go, I like that idea. My sins are covered. 
but I still feel trapped. I still feel trapped. And these are the ones, these are the ones that, that here, here preach that Christ takes away your sins. But every step from the moment of justification becomes refraining from those sins that were so tempting before. Yes, Jesus, thank you for covering my sins. And now it's my job to stop sinning. Because from here on out, it's my work. They hear grace, but they don't experience freedom. They'll cling to the law. They'll cling to things they can do for Jesus. They'll see what a moral Christian should look like. And they'll strive for that, not understanding that when Jesus puts his his identity on you, it's not a matter of Jesus saying, this is what I look like. Work your way up to here. He says, this is what I look like. And now you look like that too. And that's the identity of Christ. They cling to the law. Though Jesus died for them, they continue, consciously or not, as we'll see in Romans 7, they allow the law to have dominion over them. They allow the law to rule and reign their lives. It dictates, it dictates their steps. It dictates their emotions, how they're doing spiritually. And this, and this manifests in a multitude of ways. One of them is you can become so work-driven that being a, a good Christian is about your work output. That it's a checklist of, of have I refrained from this? Have I not done this? Have I done this? And we become work-driven, right? And, th- and that, can, that can look like either a need to brag outwardly or for a lot of us, it's just to make ourselves feel better on the inside. Because we say, this is the law. Jesus forgave me of my sins, but man, he's probably gonna forget about me if I start getting dirty again. And so I gotta, I gotta work back up there. I gotta make sure that I'm staying clean. I gotta, I gotta fulfill the law. And these become the Pharisees the ones who take something that's good, something God-given, and they make it about what they could give to God. But some of us, and this is me, some of us become guilt-driven. Excuse me. Some of us see the law, the dominion of the, the law. You feel that weight on your shoulders. And every sin that you commit looms over your head. And then we run, we run towards the need to make up for it. See, because we believe in some way that we have to make up for the mistakes that we've made, right? If, if you've messed up, you've got to make up for that, right? Rather than seeing the cross as Jesus having already made up for that, past, present, and future. And so Paul will spend then Romans 7 explaining that because we saw in Romans 6 the abusers of grace that hear hear grace and they go all right I get to do anything I want this is about me now thank you Jesus now it's my life but then in Romans 7 he says okay okay but you humans you like extremes so you go from abounding in grace and abusing it to all right let's follow the laws Let's follow the laws strictly. This is, this is what we have to do if we want to be Christians. And so he contends with that in Romans 7. He says, just as, just as there's a, a danger in the abuse of grace, there's a danger in the abuse of the law. There's a danger in the abuse of the law if we don't fully 
understand its purpose. And so we jump into our passage, starting at verse 7. Because you read verse 6 and you go, okay, grace. Let's get grace down. And he says, what then shall we say? Is the law sin? He says, certainly not. And right there, we see a very important point, which is though we can mistreat the law, it's not because there's a fault in the law. The law wasn't bad. God gave us the law. It was God given. This was a good thing. He says it's not sinful because as Paul pulls people from the spectrum of, of legalism, he wants to make sure that he's not pulling to the point where we need to go back to Romans 6, where, where he pulls from legalism and then you end up in liberalism again. And so he wants to make sure that we understand the law is not bad. He wants us to see there's an importance to the law. But, but if we fail to catch that, the law becomes death for us. Jesus even says in Matthew, right? He says, do not think that I came to destroy the law of the prophets. I didn't come to take it away. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle, funny word, will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. We can't then free ourselves from the dominion of the law if we don't understand what it's for. Because we hear grace and we say, then the law is done with. I don't need that anymore. But we see here that there's a purpose to the law. And Paul gives us our first point in verse 7. He says, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, he gives an example. I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. And so right off the bat, Paul says, the law allows you to identify your sin. And I love, I love that Paul uses covetousness. I love that. It's the last commandment that we see in the Ten Commandments. And I love that he uses it because this is 100% a heart issue. This is 100, yeah, okay, I didn't cheat on my wife, I'm good. I didn't kill anybody, I'm good. I didn't steal from my neighbor, I'm good. But man, you can hide covetousness, can't you? You can cover that up real well. It's easily covered by acts of good work or by the quietness of not expressing the things for which you covet. Jesus shows us this when he, when, when he has the, the rich young ruler come to him. And the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and Mark as Jesus is, is doing his ministry. And he, and he comes to Jesus, and I'll read it for accuracy's sake. It says, Now as Jesus was going out on the road, one came running, knelt before him, and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? He says, Jesus, Jesus, this eternal life thing, that sounds great. It sounds amazing. That sounds spectacular. Now what do I have to do to get it? Right? What do I have to do to get it? And what does Jesus say? Why do you call me good? First of all, no one is good but one, and that is God. He says, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. We're good. Do not murder. Good. Do not steal. Good. Do not bear false witness. Good. Do not be defraud. Good. Honor your mother and father. Good. Right? 
That's what the young rich ruler says to him in verse 20. Teacher, all these things I kept from my youth. He says, I got the law down, Jesus. Come on, give me something harder. Man, I want this. I want this eternal life thing. Give me something harder because I got the law down, Jesus. I got that. And I love this. It's Jesus, Jesus looking at him and it says, and loved him, which is a great, it's a great thing to point out that Jesus looks at him and this was a loving act that Jesus pulled on this guy. One thing you lack. One thing. Just one thing. That's it. Just go your way. Sell whatever you have and give to the poor. That's it. Yeah, you're rich. Sell everything you got. And you will have treasure in heaven and come take up the cross and follow me. He says, you, you wanted to know, so I gave you the law. You said, I was good in the law, Jesus. I got that down since childhood. Give me something harder. Jesus says, fine. Sell all of your things. Sell them all. It was one thing. And, we, and we're left with this. But he was sad at this word. We're sad when Jesus tells us to give something up. It's hard for us. Right? We want to do stuff for God, but when he asks us to do something we don't want to do, it's like, maybe I'll get the next one, Jesus. Like, maybe not right. And maybe I didn't want that. I think I asked for something. I, I don't think you heard me right. Let's wait a week and we'll, we'll pray about it again. Right? But he was sad at this word. And he went away sorrowful. For he had great possessions. And we saw this earlier in Romans. That, that what looks better to you? eternal life or your great possessions? Because he sounded like he really wanted eternal life. He's like, I want this. What do I got to do? I'm ready. I'm ready to work for this. He says, sell all your stuff. Well, my stuff is pretty great. I would rather this and eternal life. And so Jesus says, fine, fine. This is what you got to do. And he goes away sad. But Jesus wasn't expressing to the young ruler that his abiding by the law is what would have brought him eternal life. Because this was a loving act, right? We know if Jesus said, fulfill the law, well, God knew we couldn't fulfill the law. The Bible says that countless times. Jesus wasn't doing this lovingly saying, hey, fulfill the law and you got eternal life. Ha ha, you can't, right? That wasn't Jesus's point. He was revealing to the young ruler what his heart looked like. He was revealing the state of this man's heart. What he grasped on to so much stronger than his God. That was the point of the law, to identify this man's sin, to show this man where the character of God was lacking in his life. And it serves the same purpose for us. It serves the same purpose for us. See, we said before, when the law was established, God knew we weren't able to uphold it. Like you go, you go and see when God gave the Ten Commandments, Moses comes down off the hill and what's happening? Everyone's worshiping a golden calf. And by the way, if you're going to go find like another God, pick something cooler than like a baby cow, right? I'm just saying there's cooler, there's cooler things out there to worship, but they're worshiping a baby cow. Like they're like, okay, Moses, go up on the hill, do your thing. We'll wait for you. Hey, let's make, let's make a, Let's make a baby cow out of gold and we'll just worship that while Moses is gone. Like, that sounds good, right? 
And so God said, I knew when I gave you the law, you'd fail it within like 45 seconds. The point wasn't for you to be able to fulfill it and save yourselves. Rather, God gave the law to establish a people based around the character of God. Meaning then that the law shows us where we're lacking in the character of God as well. It helps us identify sin. But, but even in the knowledge of our sin, through the law, do we find great danger? Because Paul will say in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 56, the strength of sin is the law. The strength of sin is the law. Well, if God gave the law and it was good, why is sin so strong in it? That's our question. And Paul answers that. Continue into verse 8. Look in, look in verse 8 of chapter 7 of Romans. It says, But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, it doesn't say that the law was flawed. It said it took an opportunity because we were. Sin snuck in, seeing our weakness. Sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. So this is, going to be, this is going to be tough because our first point was that the law helps us identify our sins. But our second point is that the law stirs up our sins within us. The law stirs up our sins within us. See, because the issue for us as rebellious humans of, of being told a rule is that we like to what? Break them. You're given a rule. And you, you want to break it, right? I've, I've never adhered to the speed limit, like, once. <laughs> stop signs are like an afterthought. Like, oh, I think I passed the stop sign again. Oopsies. <laughs> like, because we don't like rules. We don't like rules. We're, we're given a rule. Please follow this. Please don't break it. Now go. And then it's like, oh, man. He told me not to, but I really want to. I really want to. Like, have you seen those videos of like, they, they sit a kid in a room and this is like, this is pure evil. They sit a kid in a room and they put like a big old cake in front of them. And then they're like, hey, one rule, don't eat the cake. You can smell it. You can look at it. You can think about it, but don't eat the cake. And then they leave. And like, this is an eternity for, for a six-year-old. They leave for like 10 minutes, five minutes. And then they come back and they're like, hey, did you eat the cake? Wasn't me. Well, what was it? Well, there's a big old finger hole. No, it wasn't me. I don't. I don't know where they. That was there when. That was there when he put the cake down. Right? You come back and the rule's broken because we're rebellious people. See, see, growing up for me, here's an example. Growing up for me, bedtime did not mean it was time for bed. It was time to make my parents think I was in bed. It wasn't bedtime. Like, all right, you got to be in bed by nine o'clock. All right, I will have all the lights off by nine o'clock, but I won't go to bed. I didn't like, I didn't like that rule. See, because when I was young, and I, I still have this issue now sometimes, when I was young, I, I had trouble going to sleep. Either I didn't like it, or even if I wanted to, it just took me forever to fall asleep. And so when, whenever it was time for lights out, because I shared a room with my brother, whenever it was like, all right, Matt wants to go to sleep, lights out, that meant for my brain party. Like, let's get the night going. It's only like one in the morning. 
What are you still doing in bed? Get up and do something. But because we shared a room, because we shared a room, like brothers, right? We shared a room, so I couldn't be awake in there. Otherwise, Matt would know. Matt would know and he'd tell on me. So here's what I did. Here's what I did. First night, first night, I snuck downstairs. I was so sneaky. You know, you, you open the door, but then like when you close it, you don't just push it. You like turn it so the latch like is already closed. And then you're like, so I closed the door and I snuck downstairs and I watched some, some TV. But do you guys know what's on at three in the morning? Infomercials. Like I was like an eight year old watching infomercials because I wanted to break the rules. But my mom, who I'm, I guarantee you could work for the FBI, for some reason, she heard me. The volume was like on three, and she was way up in her bedroom, sleeping, door closed. She heard me, and she comes down. She's like, hey, I told you bedtime. I told you bedtime. That was the rule. Go to bed. So I was like, okay, I'll go to bed. But that wasn't the end of it for me. Night two came along, and I said, I'm going to do better this time. I'm going to do better this time. So what I did was I, I searched our TV High and low, looking for one magical part on the TV where you could plug headphones in. Then she couldn't hear the TV. So I found my headphones, I plugged them in, and I stood there, and I was like, this is so uncomfortable. I gotta stand here. So I, I rummaged through the house the next day, and I found the biggest, biggest extension cord you could find for headphones. And so I'm, so, I'm this little eight-year-old sneaking down every night, plugging it into the TV, and then 15 feet back out on the couch. I got this cord dangling. I looked like a total idiot. Why? Because I didn't want to follow the rules. I didn't want to follow the rules. And that seems so silly. Like, yeah, of course kids break rules. That's who kids are. But this sort of thinking doesn't stop once we're growing up. Let's be honest with ourselves. I was, I was, at, uh, I was in Cambria. I was in Cambria last week. Uh, if you're from the area, you probably pronounce it Cambria, so I'm sorry for butchering it. But I was in Cambria, and they have what's called Hearst Castle. How many of you have been to Hearst Castle? Yeah? You know what it is? It's this rich guy who's like, hey, let's build a giant house on a giant hill with really expensive things. And we're going to have parties there, and that's going to be my life. And now, now the state makes money because you go, you go on a visit. They're like, this crazy guy built this big old house on hill. He could have done it anywhere else. And so you go to visit it. And so, so you get to Hearst Castle. It's just a tour of the, the different houses, right? But of course, because it's state-owned, they had rules. They had rules. They told you what not to do. They said, hey, no gum, first of all, which I had the whole time. And then I thought it was funny to like stick it out of my mouth every time the tour guide turned around and go, and then she turned back around. Right? So it was no gum. It was no gum. It was stay on the carpet. It was stay on. They had these like little carpets around the house, like you didn't mess up his floors. And so of course, like every time I was in the back of the room, I was like, all right, carpet's there. I'm here, good. And I'd walk around like next to the carpet as as often as I could. And then, and this is one that stood out to me the most. And then they said, hey, and please, and they emphasized this one. So I was like, ooh. They must really care about this one. They said, please, please, don't touch anything. Like, this is expensive stuff. Don't touch anything. The first thing I did, and she will attest to this, the first thing I did is I turned to my wife and I said, I'm going to see how many things I could touch today. (laughs) Right? So, so I have no idea what the tour guide said that day, but I could tell you, I touched a lot of stuff I wasn't supposed to that day. Because we like to break rules. We love to break rules. 
so stupid. <laughs> because we like to do what we're not supposed to do, and we struggle to do the things that we're supposed to do. And that's why almost everyone, if not everyone in this room, knows what it is like to write a 20-page term paper on the last night of the semester because you didn't want to do it two months ago. Like, we know what it's like to say, hey, do this. If I know I want to and I should, but I won't. And we struggle with that. And it's this very issue that Paul identifies. If you want to jump down to verse 14 with me, it says, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me. But how to perform what is good, I do not bind. For the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil I will not to do, that I practice. And Paul says, even if I want to do it, I don't do it. And if I don't want to do it, I can't help myself. I can't help myself but do it. I find in me a desire to do good, but I find in me an even greater desire to do evil. He says, I know what is good, and I really want to do it, but I don't. I sit there, and it calls me. It tempts me, and I do it. And these desires, as Paul says, begin to war inside of us. And that brings us to one simple point. We saw two things the law did. Now Paul brings us to something that the law does not do. He says the law does not, nor can it, save us. You who cling to the law, who let that be your ruler that is leading you to death because you cannot fulfill it. It it reveals your sin. And we saw that, that the wages of sin are death. And so he says, the law cannot save you. But then where are we as God's people given the law left? Because if the law is good, but it can't save us, where do we find our place with it? How do I continue to abide by the law but not let it have dominion over me? That's the question that we're posed with at this point. And so Paul handles that. Paul handles that. And I love the way that he does it. See, Paul doesn't, Paul doesn't look at the people who cling to the law, the people who love a list of rules on what to do and what not to do. He doesn't look at these people and say, okay, you know, here are five steps for you to not let the law have dominion over you. That is not what Paul does, right? Which is what I think a lot of us would prefer. Lord, it's just easier if you tell me what to do. Give me like five to 10 things on how to not let the law have dominion over me and I'll do it, right? Because that's, that's the mentality built up around us, right? You go to work, how do you know what to do? Well, your boss tells you what to do. He says, this needs to be done today, this needs to be done today, and this needs to be done today. Please do that today. You go to school, right? Most of you guys are in school. What is, what is school but a teacher telling you things to do by the next class meeting? 
here's your list of things on how to get an A in the class, right? We all love those teachers who are like, hey, I want you guys to succeed. So if you just follow these simple things, man, you guys are going to succeed in my class. We love just being given lists on how to do things. And right, we even do it in our free time. And I think this is so funny, right? Because there's, there's some of us, not, I'm not going to point fingers, but I live with somebody who does this, who scrolls through Facebook and loves to look at all these different lists. And she's not the only one, right? She's not the only one who finds these lists on, that say, here's, here's something you want and here's how to get it, Right? Ten, ten steps to a healthier life. Three ways to make your life easier, right? How to make the cat stop playing with the toilet paper. Five easy steps, right? It's like, it's like we love lists. Just tell me what to do and I will do it so that I can have what I want so I can succeed. And they're always the most absurd suggestions too. They're so absurd what they tell you to do, right? I was reading an article because I'm a... I could be a hoarder. That's probably the best way to say it. Is, is growing up, I would come home from school and my mom had this container and she'd say, empty your pockets. And I'd pull out like pen caps and rocks and like chewed up bubble gum. And I'd be like, mom, look what I found today. She's like, wow, that's amazing, son. Good job. What'd you learn in school? I don't know. Bye. And then she'd take all this stuff and she'd fill my jar with it. Right. I love, I love things. I love to like put things around me. But then, man, I just feel so cluttered. And the Lord was like, you're living a really cluttered life. So I was like, okay, I'm going to declutter my life. So what did I do? I looked up ways to make your life simpler, ways to make your life easier. And one suggestion really stuck out to me. It said, you want to make your life simpler? Here's a surefire way. It says, before you go to bed, every night, before you go to bed, clean your sink. And I read this and I was like, no, I must have read that wrong. And I was like, clean your sink? Like, that's gonna make my life simpler? <laughs> Cleaning my sink before bed? Like, don't get me wrong, I like a clean sink, but it's because I don't want leftover dinner in there for like four weeks. But it's not like making my life, like, I don't wake up in the morning and go, oh, I forgot to clean the sink last night! Oh, whoa! And like, my day is suddenly like more structured and like put into place, because, uh, oh my gosh, my sink was clean which means that my taxes are going to be so easy this year, right? Like it's, it was the most absurd suggestions. And so Paul doesn't give a list like, oh, great guys, if you do one, two, three, four, five, you're good. Law won't have dominion over you, right? Because if he just gave us another list, we would just cling to that. We would just hold on to those things to follow. Nor... Nor does Paul give us a new perspective on the law itself. Because what we learned wasn't anything typically new if you grew up in the church. That yes, the law identifies my sin, right? And that knowing what is bad, those are the things that I like to do. He doesn't give us really a new perspective on sin. Rather, rather, he gives us a new perspective of what our relationship is to the law. So did I, did I say sin before? I meant law. I'm sorry. He doesn't give us a new perspective on, on, on the law he gives us a new perspective of our relationship to the law after we begin life with Jesus. And so we work through verses 7 through the end of the chapter, and now we're going to jump back. So look at verse 1 with me. Or do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. 
right? As long as you live, the law owns you. The law rules you. And he gives us an example. For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she's released from the law of her husband. So then, if while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. He says, think of a man and a woman, right? In marriage. Easy thing to picture, right? He says, if that woman were still married to a man and she steps out of the house, has relations with another woman, she's cheating on her husband and she's called an adulteress. And this is so badly our problem that we desire to be with Jesus. We desire to be with Jesus, but we still, in a lot of ways, consider ourselves married to the law. We still allow ourselves to feel like we're bound to the law. Like we have to keep the law in order to have a good standing. <clears throat> Meaning that we can't be completely devoted to Jesus because we're bound to another. It says, if you leave who you are married to and go to another, you're an adulteress. So if we're married to the law, we can't leave the law completely for Jesus. So then, rather than freeing ourselves from our old master, we place the works that we can present to Jesus according to the law. Well, I still have to abide by these. But if I follow these, then I can present these to the one I want to be with. And he'll look at me and he'll go, oh, you are so beautiful because you did these wonderful things for me. And we place those things above the work Jesus did on the cross in order to free us from the dominion of the law. And I was thinking about this. And I was thinking about this. And the Lord spoke this to me personally, and it was something I wanted to share with you guys. See, practically, what this looks like for a lot of us is a very simple, a very common, but a very devastating issue. Is that we will fight so hard to combat our individual sins. We will, we will see where we are failing the law and we will do everything in our power to fight those sins. But we never really allow Jesus to take care of the root of the problem. We never let Jesus come in and change our sin nature to make us new in him. See, because too often will I find myself begging and begging for God's forgiveness over a sin I've committed. Because I said I'm guilt-driven, right? Lord, please forgive me. Please forgive me. And I promise you, Lord, and I know we've all said this, I promise, Lord, I will never do that again. I will never do that again. Only to do it again. Only to find ourselves doing it again. And I gave Dane this visual earlier, is that I'm trying to pull weeds out I'm trying to pull weeds out so my seed can grow. I'm working really hard to remove these weeds. And I didn't even realize that the seed was planted in bad soil. I was working on, on taking care of these individual sins, but I didn't let Jesus come in and change my sin nature. And it became what I was doing for him, how I could excel in my ministries, how I could look better to other people rather than what Jesus did in order to say, no, you look like my beloved child. And here's our saving grace in all of it. 
verse, the second half of verse 3 starting there. It says, but if her husband dies, she is free from that law so that she is no adulteress, though she has married another man. Therefore, my brother, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead. Guys, if that doesn't shake your soul, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. Bear fruit to God. I hope you guys saw what Paul just said there. He says, if the husband dies though, she is freed from the law and is no longer bound to her husband. And she can go and remarry. She can go and remarry. But wait, but wait, if we, if we look really closely at Paul's illustration, we're the wife and the law is the husband. Because, because the wife is free to remarry because the husband died. Yet Paul says, we, the wife, have become dead to the law. Meaning logically, meaning logically that the only way for her to get remarried is for her to come back to life. The only way for the wife to remarry is if she's the one who dies, is for her to come back to life. And that is exactly Paul's point. He says the law didn't die. The law didn't die. See, because our struggle in removing dominion from the law isn't trying to fulfill it. We'll see in Romans 8, 3, it says, for what the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh. Our flesh was weak, and we could not fulfill it. But he says, nor is it trying to abolish it. He says, it's not the one who died. What happened is that our relationship was allowed to change with the law. Jesus comes in, and in his death, he says, be crucified with me. Die so that you can marry another. And so that's how Paul helps us find the middle ground between liberalism in, in Romans 6 and legalism, is that showing the law never died. The law didn't die. We did. And in that death, we were raised with Christ in order that we might marry another, as our passage says, to him who was raised from the dead. So instead of us trying to prune our individual sins, getting stuck on what I need to fix one by one, instead of trying to abide by the law to please Christ, he says Christ comes in and he changes the whole plant altogether. He's not just going to come in and prune you. He's going to give you new soil. And he's going to plant a fresh seed. And he's going to water it. He's going to take care of it so that we should bear fruit to God. I want to close with a couple points. Paul doesn't say that the law has no place in our lives. I want to make that clear. Paul doesn't say, hey, the law has no place in your life. He says too often, though, it's taking the wrong place. He doesn't say there's no place. He says it's taking the wrong place. And so rather, rather than using the law to justify ourselves before the Lord, the law is meant to reveal to us the character of God. So that where we see us failing in the law, we can turn to God and say, thank you for being so much better. Where we see our failure, our lusts, 
being adulteresses. Thank you, Jesus, for being faithful. Where I am evil, thank you for being the epitome of good. That's what the law does for us. Not so we can work on our character flaws, but so we can turn to the one who makes us a completely new person. He makes us completely new. And not that we might just be a new person. I want to hit this point home. But that we get to marry another. We get to marry another. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ. That you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. See, it's not a matter of pruning ourselves to make way for the fruit. It's about allowing God to replant us in fertile soil through marriage to him. He says, don't try to fulfill the law and don't try to abolish it. He says, stop being married to it. He says, die with me, be crucified with me because, because like we saw in Romans 6, it didn't end at Jesus' death. He rose again. And so we get to be raised with him so that we get to marry another. And we have communion up here as we enter into a time of worship. And how fitting that is, right? If you don't know, what communion is, is a representation of the work of Jesus on the cross. That Jesus took our, our sins on the cross. The Bible says that he didn't just represent our sins, he became our sins. So that God could be just and the justifier, pour out his wrath for our sins on Jesus, taking care of them. And so we take the bread or the cracker, representing the body of Christ that was broken. And then we have grape juice or wine. This is not wine, this is grape juice. (laughs) Representing the blood that had to be shed for the remission of sins to cover us. But guys, there's an even greater connection here as we take communion. See, in the Jewish culture, in the Jewish culture, it was tradition that when a man wanted to marry a woman, he would say, Dad, see that girl over there? I want to marry her. And so what they would do is the father and the son would go over to this girl's house and the fathers would talk and they would discuss prices which sounds kind of bad, but it wasn't buying the girl's hand in marriage. It was buying an opportunity for the son to propose. And so if they came to an agreement on price, the son would get to offer up proposal to her. And what he would do is a glass of wine would be poured and he would extend it out to her. And if she drank from the cup, it meant that she was accepting his offer. She says, yes, I will marry you. And so, so when Jesus, at the Passover feast, when he institutes the Lord's Supper, he's going through the traditions of the feast as any rabbi would. But he gets to a very specific cup that was often set aside in the traditions. And he takes this cup. And we we see Paul describe it in 1 Corinthians. In the same manner, Jesus also took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. 
meaning what the disciples heard when Jesus offered up this cup was, will you marry me? Will you be my bride? And so as we take communion, he asks you the same question. Taking communion isn't going to save you. But it's, it's you being able to express, yes, Jesus, I will marry you. I will be yours. And though I am unfaithful, though I am dirty, thank you for loving me. Thank you for calling me beautiful. And so he died the death that we should so that we too could be crucified with him so that we would no longer have to be bound to the law, trying to get to Jesus without cheating on our old husband. He says, you're going to die. I'm going to give you new life. And in that new life, an opportunity to marry a better husband. Amen? Amen. Lord, we thank you for, for your offer. Lord, that you paid the price on the cross to be able to extend out the cup and say, will you marry me? So Lord, I pray that every heart in this room would be asked that question. Lord, that we would be reminded if we are yours, that we belong to you. And Lord, if we're not yours, that we would understand you want us to be. Jesus, in this time of worship, I pray that we would find a quietness within us to just rest in your presence. Where we've been fighting so hard to, to combat our individual sins, Lord, help us to allow you to replant in a fertile soil. Lord, that you would Remove the dominion of the law from our lives. Lord, not simply so we could be freed and abuse grace. Not so that we then can try to work our way back up to the law. But so that we could marry a beautiful, wonderful, magnificent husband. Be glorified in our lives. Be magnified above all other names, Jesus. Let us not leave here untransformed, but renew our hearts and our minds. Lord, give us a right spirit before you. We love you, but that sentence pales in comparison to the sentence of you love us and you loved us first. And it's in your wonderful and precious name we pray. Amen.